Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. What do I do? I low crawled over to where I saw a group of men hoping that they would be Americans, right? And when I got over to the group, the guy who greeted me was Asian, but he wasn't American, but I didn't know at the time. He was from Chinatown, San Francisco, and he became a really good friend of mine. But yet at that moment, I raised my rifle up and he goes, no, no, no. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Welcome to another educational segment of Stigma Free Vet Zone. Today's guest promises to be very educational. I've had a number of conversations with him, and our guest is John Wesley Fisher. And John Wesley Fisher was conscripted by his country to fight in Vietnam during the 1968 Tet Offensive campaigns. He served on the front lines and brought home wounds that couldn't be seen. He never dreamed that his destiny would include fighting in a war, and once entangled in the carnage, he'd never expected to survive. Returning home with a challenge, and he began post-war life traveling, studying for his profession, a doctorate of chiropractic, and eventually writing about his experiences. He has accomplished a 40-year chiropractic practice, authored five books, and has traveled post-war back to the land of his nightmares 14 different times. He is the director of CORE, C-O-R-E, Community Reconciliation, Vietnam, a nonprofit organization for veterans and civilians and humanitarian travel to Vietnam. Presently, he lives in the backwoods of Maine with his wife of 12 years, Lindley Field. John, we're coming out to Maine, the beautiful state of Maine, to welcome you to our show, and thank you for taking the time to spend this with us. Thanks for having me. We have had some wonderful conversations, but let's get right down to it because you're, you're, you're just uh, great information. Just give us a little bit of background on, on John Wesley Fisher up to uh, the time you entered the military, why you entered the military, and Maybe what's your expectations were going that way? <laughs> well, I was raised in San Diego. My family is originally from Washington State. My father was getting his PhD in sociology in uh, Boston when I was born. But basically, I was raised in San Diego and grew up with a surfboard. My best friend was my surfboard. And I probably spent more time in the water than I did actually in school, which was pretty unfortunate for my grades and also for my father, who was a 
professor at a school, California Western University in San Diego. And when it came time for me to go to college after graduating from high school, my grades were not too good because I wasn't there most of the time. So I didn't get in. And uh, very disappointing for my father, as you can imagine. But I decided to try college and went to a junior college. But the same reason I didn't do well in high school is the same reason I didn't do well in college. And so I soon dropped out and pursued my interest, which was surfing. And 1967, I was crowned the Class A surfing champion for the United States and had opportunities for future advancements, except that uh, a month after I received that trophy, I was drafted by my country. Now, I honestly was very naive. I just had my 20th birthday and I was so naive, I actually thought that not everybody's going to get drafted that wasn't going to college. I had a two-year deferment from that one semester that I went to, but uh, because I didn't continue with college, I lost that deferment and was available for the draft. And it was just before big things were about to happen for me in the surfing world. So I was drafted. And although I had many friends who tried to get out of the draft, I could not justify doing that. My friends were getting out for doing different things and failing the, the IQ tests and doing all kinds of things to get out of the draft, but I just couldn't justify doing that to myself. And so I joined. I, I guess I did. I guess I joined. I don't feel like I really joined the military. They swore me in, let's put it that way. <laughs> and November 27th, I was on a bus with a bunch of other recruits headed from Los Angeles. The recruiting depot was in Los Angeles, not in San Diego. So we were on a bus from Los Angeles to Fort Ord, California, arriving there at about 2 a.m. And my experience in the military began. The next day, I had a shaved head. I had clothes the same color as everybody else. And I was shining my boots, which I probably never have shined a shoe in my life. And I was off and running for two weeks or two months of pretty intensive basic training. I was not a happy camper. I was very angry. I got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I did a lot of push-ups <laughs> because of that. We ran a lot. And we had a, um, a unit, D33 was, was our unit name in the basic training. And the, uh, for the sergeants and, every, and the captain and lieutenant, everybody seemed to be African-American. They really had a goal in mind is to whip these white boys into shape. And so they wanted to have the best record for, on the PT test, I think, of any of the companies. And they got it. We had three guys with perfect scores, 500 scores on the PT test. I was one of them. And mainly because I was just harassed so much that I was in pretty darn good shape. So what, what, what year are we now, John? That's in 1967. And it was 68 before I got out of basic training. So, so yeah. now you're getting out of basic training. Are you aware yet that there's a war in Vietnam and that you oh, might be going there? Definitely no. I always knew there was a war in Vietnam, but I really didn't even know where Vietnam was when I was in high school and college. And I was so naive and ignorant of the situation that I just went on life as usual. And so now all of a sudden I'm going there, but I'm going there, you know, they try to brainwash you in basic training and get you all ready for fighting and everything and pretty much telling us that we have a less than 50% chance of returning home. I mean, they really drilled it into us. 
I was um, asked in basic training if I wanted to go to OCS. I guess I had high enough testing scores that they picked me out of the group and called me down in the middle of the night, waking me up in the middle of the night and sending me down to the captain's office where the captain and a bunch of sergeants and, and other officers were trying to talk me into going to OCS. And so I said, so what will that curtail? Is the well, they'll send you to Fort Sill, Oklahoma and teach you how to be a forward observer. And then uh, you'll be going to Vietnam. And I said, Vietnam. So I'll be going as a second lieutenant to Vietnam. Yes, you'll have some rank and it, life will be easier. You'll spend six months out in the field and then you'll be sent back to base camp and promoted to uh, first lieutenant and and you'll be in charge of stuff, and it'll be a great life. And I said, well, seems to me I was drafted for two years. Seems to me like you're going to want me in the service for a little bit longer than two years if I do this. And they said, oh, yes, you'll be asked to re-up for six years, and, and uh, you'll probably be a captain before you get out of the military. And I said, six years. I said, you know, two years is way too long for me to be in the military already, and I'm not going to do that. And, oh, boy, was I the brunt of physical abuse after that. I had to do push-ups and dying cockroaches and, <laughs> and oh, you name it. And that's why I got in such good shape. <laughs> and so at any rate, when I got my orders after basic training, they actually sent me to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, but not to go to OCS because I had declined that offer, but it was to be trained on 105 howitzers. I guess for some reason, they thought that that was going to be my job. You know, I didn't take it real seriously there. I volunteered to be the truck driver most of the time. I learned how to fire a 105 howitzer and how it works and everything, but I wasn't going to be a competent gun bunny over there in Vietnam, that's for sure. But when the orders came down, we were sitting in rank and everybody, the, all five platoons were in, in the formation and the captain got up and said, all National Guard and Army Reservists are going to be going home and everybody else you're going to Vietnam. And that's all he said. And he walked off the podium and that was it. And I'm going, oh, oh boy. I mean, just like that, we're going to Vietnam. And I really, I mean, that was a pretty scary thing. We got a two week leave. I went home, went surfing, <coughs> considered my options, continue with this, take off. But where do I go? Do I go to Canada? There's no surf in Canada. There, there is some surf, but it's not, not what I would want. And I, you know, I really, I really didn't know what to do, but I went. I just reported for duty. My family had already moved away from San Diego at the time, so I didn't really have a family farewell. My mother decided to fly to Spokane, Washington, and I met her there. My, I was to report at Fort Lewis, Washington, and that's in Seattle. And my grandparents lived in Spokane, so we decided to have a little rendezvous in Spokane. My grandparents, before I shipped out, and I remember getting on the bus that morning that I was to report at Fort Lewis and I was in Spokane. It would be a four or five hour bus ride. And then I'd be reporting in the afternoon at Fort Lewis. And I remember looking out the window and there was my mom, my grandmother, my grandfather, my grandfather standing at attention, World War I veteran, a hero, World War I. He was a, a lieutenant coming out of the war in France. And he was so proud of me and my grandmother <laughs> My mom were crying, and that was my farewell. So on the bus, get to Seattle, figure out how to get to Fort Lewis, and I checked in that afternoon. Craziest thing happened is that I ran into a guy that was also in the same uh, unit with me at Fort Sill. I didn't really know him very well, but 
uh, we became pretty good friends there that day at Fort Lewis as we going around and hung together as we doing all the different processing that you have to do before you leave the country, before uh, you head off into the plane. Usually it's a two to three day formality, but we were only there for a couple of hours and we're sitting here in this one line and all of a sudden some officer comes out of the back room and says, I need two guys right now, two volunteers to go to Vietnam right this minute. We have two empty seats. We need to fill them. And then he said, you and you. And he pointed to me and my friend. <laughs> and I go, I thought it was volunteer. He said, yes, you just volunteered. <laughs> so we're off to the bus. And the bus, I mean, they processed us within minutes after that out of there. And we were on a bus. It was mostly African-American on the bus and they started this chanting and the chanting was really interesting because it was it was like oh please mr bus driver please don't take us to vietnam we don't want to die mr bus driver please take keep going to canada i mean i felt the same way they did but you know i i didn't voice it and it really made me nervous i was scared it continued on the plane bus rides by the way right up to the plane, which was a Northwestern airline, I believe. I, it's no longer in service, so I don't, it's Northwestern, I think it was. I know Braniff is what brought me home, but Northwestern, it was sitting there at the Air Force Base, and the bus stopped just close enough so that when I stepped off of the bus, my right foot hit the ground, my left foot hit the ramp going up into the plane. And so I only got one foot on American soil again before I got on the plane. By the way, when I got off the plane a year later, I made sure that my left foot hit the ground first <laughs> so, that I, so that I could have that, that, that continuation of that step. But at any rate, I went to Vietnam and we went to Cameron Bay. Honestly, I had no expectations on what was going to happen. I thought I, thought I was going to die. And when I ended up meeting a friend of mine who was stationed in Cameron Bay, he was a cook. And I, you know, we were in there for processing again, a few more days of that one. And, and I asked him, so where's the worst place to go? And this is in the middle of Tet Offensive. Most people think Tet Offensive just happened in January of 1968. That was the first wave of the Tet Offensive. The more, most people were killed in the second wave of the Tet Offensive, which was in May of 1968. And that's what year we were there. I arrived in Vietnam on May 7th. My orders came down. I remember my friend sitting in the back of the formation, standing there, just curious as to where I was going to be going. And, and when they, whoever gave out the order said, you're going, they called out my name and a couple other guys in Central Highlands, Campanari, Pleiku, Vietnam. My friend, I never got to talk to him again. He was in the back of the room. We were right face, forward march, onto a bus, then onto the plane. It was, the plane was a C-130, a kind of a scary uh, piece of equipment, big, giant plane with props. It can hold deuce and a half trucks inside of it. It's that big. And we were all loaded in there, sitting in rows on the floor with one belt across all of our laps and hardly any windows in here. And it's not a very long flight, probably 40 to 50 minutes, but yet it was the longest 50 minutes of my life. And it lands, lands in Pleiku at an Air Force base there. And then we were bused to Campanari, which is the Army base camp. 
Uh, John, John let, let me interrupt you just for a second here politely. We're speaking with uh, Vietnam veteran and author John Wesley Fisher. Just a, a, a couple of things to, to clear up a quick or explain. Uh, number one, Tet Offensive. The country exploded in South Vietnam, even though it's a, a holiday, typically. And the other one, I, I, at this point, I, I, do you have any mission that you believe in of where you're going? Or is this all a personal thing of whether am I going to survive for this year? But is there anything inside you that says, yes, we're going there to stop Ho Chi Minh? Or here's my mission and I've got a, I'm involved in it. I believe in it. I didn't believe I, I didn't believe I had the uh, capability actually of killing another person, and I would have never joined to do this service. My country asked me to do this. I answered the call. I really don't know why. I think it was just because I didn't want to disgrace myself by doing some of the things that you'd have to do to get out of it. So I I was there. I didn't. I I was really scared. I did not know. I mean I. You know, I didn't know anything about much about Ho Chi Minh and about the NVA and the VC. There's two armies that we were fighting. Uh, the Viet Cong were, were communist sympathizers from the south, and the NVA were, co were communist inductees, just like me, from the north. And much of the VC was inductees also. There was also an Arvin army over in Vietnam, which was the South Vietnamese army, and that's who we were supposedly to be allied with. And I had no expectations about why, why I was there. And, you know, basically in the mix, mix of it all, once we start rolling, rocking and rolling over there, my motto became kill or be killed. And I didn't want to kill, but I didn't want to be killed. So what do you do? Again, we're speaking with Vietnam veteran and author John Wesley Fisher. You're arriving in the middle of Tet, and just as an explanation, I don't think the I think the Americans were caught off guard when the the when the Vietnamese North Vietnamese used Tet that year in 1968 to uh, uh, officially attack almost every American base in South Vietnam. But just, without too much, just explain to some of our listeners who may not understand Tet. It, it's a holiday, but they've turned it in now to this offensive, a military offensive. They did in 1968. Tet is the most sacred time in Vietnam. And, you know, it's, it follows along the same lines as Chinese New Year, although Vietnamese are very proud. And so they do not claim that their, any of their holidays or anything that they do are related to the Chinese. Even some of their Zodiac characters are a little bit different than the Chinese Zodiac characters. Every month, every year gets one. There's 12 of them. It's a holiday. It's a two-week celebration in most cases. Sometimes it's even longer. And it just goes on and on. And most of the time, and in the past, the Vietnamese took this time off and there was ceasefire during this time. There's supposed to be ceasefire at our Christmas time too, by the way, but that didn't happen. And so it didn't happen that particular year because they decided to do a surprise attack. And they did it once before, early, early in history. Can't remember the year right now, but it was done against the Chinese and very successfully. And if the Americans had read the history, they could have known that perhaps the Vietnamese, you know, to be alert, the Vietnamese can do, could do this, uh, but they didn't, and they did, Vietnamese did, and it was pretty bad, especially. Well, I mean, the the news reporters and everybody reported the Tet Offensive during that Vietnamese New Year time, which was in January, and basically, though, they that was Phase One, and Phase One blew over into phase two, which was in May, and then phase three, again in August. And so I was there for two parts of those, and the May one was, the phase two was the worst one, 
more people are listed on the wall of during May of 1968, the American Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C., than any other uh, month or year during the war. And more were killed in, in the Central Highlands than any other part of Vietnam. So that was that was where I was. That's where you were. I, I would just like to add it, and I, I don't want to focus on it. The average age group of that number on the Vietnam Wall, I believe, is 18 and 19 years old, too. That's so, correct. So I'm one of the old guys, actually. I'm 20 years old. <laughs> so, okay, th- thank you for explaining that. Let, let's get you back to Pleiku now. So you've landed in Pleiku on the C-130 and continue on there. So we had some we had some training there. It was about a week of training, and they were to teach us all about Vietnamese culture. And I mean, they, they didn't teach us about Vietnamese culture. Now that I know Vietnamese culture from, well, I will explain later by returning to Vietnam, but they wanted us to learn all about the tactical things from the Vietnamese and also to learn how to fire our weapon, which we had never even seen before. We were issued an M16 semi-automatic rifle, which was a plastic, black plastic piece that had to be impeccably clean to work. And so we were taught how to clean it and then sent to the firing range and learn how to fire it. And, you know, in training, we learned on this M14 weapon, which was a heavier piece with a wood handle and and so forth. And it was just completely different piece of equipment. And so we had to learn how to use it. And then at the end of the week, we got orders for our units. And so I was assigned to the 4th of 42nd Artillery Battalion because of my 105 training. And 105 is a howitzer gun that can be towed behind a truck, but most in Vietnam, it was mostly put in a sling under a helicopter and dropped into the middle of the jungle on top of a hill. We're in the Central Highlands, so they would come in and spray a hill with Agent Orange, clear it all up, make it naked, and then bring in the guns and position them. And there we were, sitting on top of this hill, kind of like a, a bullseye up there with it all cleared off and everything with our guns. And so I was to be, you know, on one of those in one of those batteries. They call them battery, not a company in the artillery. But before I got to the unit, a first sergeant approached, there was five of us walking down the road to the 4th of the 42nd. And uh, he approached the group and said, anybody here had any college? I, <laughs> I looked around because, you know, uh, what, I had a half a, a semester of college that I really didn't do very well in anyway. And, but nobody else raised their hand. So I raised my hand and he said, okay, you come with me and went with him. And it turns out that he had volunteered me to become part of the intelligence squad, which is a a squad of three people. He, the first sergeant, a captain, and myself. And I was picked because I would have some kind of scholarly understanding and know how to type and so forth. And later he found out that I only had a semester of college and he wasn't very happy with that, but he was more unhappy with the fact that the captain was from also from San Diego. And he and I became pretty good friends. We both graduated from Point Loma High School, actually. He was a bit, quite a bit older than I was, about six, seven years older than I was. So I never knew him before, but uh, we became kind of friends and I didn't even have to call him sir or anything, you know, and the first sergeant was just beside himself. And when he got another recruit in that had more college than I had, I think he got somebody with a bachelor's degree, actually, he replaced me. And he replaced me. The timing of the replacement was impeccable as they were putting me onto the chopper out to go to the battery to become a part of a gun crew of a 105 howitzer. It turned out that the forward observer for the battery who marches and humps out 
in the field with the infantry lost his RTO, a radio telephone operator, and he was killed the day before. And as I got to the unit, the captain arrived down at the chopper pad and said, I hear there's uh, one of your recruits that's been here for a little bit. You have a top secret clearance. You've been working with the intelligence. And I said, yes, sir, that'd be me. And he said, very good. <laughs> the rest of you go on up and you'll be assigned to a gun and you, <laughs> private, <laughs> will be sent further forward. I go, further forward? <laughs> for what? <laughs> You're going to become the RTO for the FO and he's waiting for you out at the company. So I hopped on that chopper. I mean, completely scared out of my mind. Can you believe it? I mean, I thought I was going to be on the battery. At least we're in a group of guys surrounded and, and protected by the infantry perimeter, but I was going forward. So here I am, and I arrive at that. When the chopper starts circling this area, I look down there, and there's smoke everywhere. I smell, and it's not, it's not a fire. It's not a, it's, gunfire it smells like gunpowder and, and they're going to drop me off here and he said he gets about 10 feet from the from the surface and he says all right out of here you know and i'm going what <laughs> he wants me to jump out of here into where into what what am i doing and before i knew it the gunner had his hand on the back of my backpack and shoved me out the door i landed on my feet but i fell backwards onto my pack it was heavy and I fell back onto my pack and rolled over immediately onto my stomach, looking around. Where do I go? What do I do? I low crawled over to where I saw a group of men hoping that they would be Americans, right? And when I got over to the group, the guy who greeted me was Asian, but he was an American. But I didn't know it at the time. He was from Chinatown, San Francisco, and he became a really good friend of mine. But yet at that moment... I raised my rifle up and he goes, no, no, no. I'm GI, man. I'm GI. I'm from San Francisco, Chinatown, man. I, don't shoot me. Boy, that was my introduction. So after the firefight was over, the, the infantry, uh, we called them grunts, they were ordered out to do a sweep. And that's to check on body count and to see how successful they were during that contact mission. That happened after almost every contact mission out there. And I was left behind and wondering what I'm, what's to become of me, where am I going, what's going to happen? And the lieutenant came up and introduced himself, Lieutenant Alvarez, and he was amazing guy. I called him Robbie, and he um, taught me everything about how to be an RTO. And he was really gracious, kind, and nice. And I didn't call him, didn't have to call him sir or or even acknowledged the fact that he was an officer. He was just a really great guy, and it really helped me out a lot. And he taught me all about being an RTO, which was very important. Later, he was wounded, severely wounded, and medevaced out, and I was left alone to do his job. And it was three months into my tour over there, and I remember forget calling in my first fire mission, thinking, oh my God, did he teach me enough to do this right? Is it going to go where I need to go? We had to support ourselves. We were, as he was getting, as he was hit, the whole unit was getting hit. And I was asked, the infantry captain came over and says, well, this is your game now, Buster. Let's get it going here. We got to call in fire all around and get pr protection in here, uh, offensive. So I'm immediately communicating with the fire direction center at the artillery base, at the artillery battery and calling in infantry 
and praying that it's going to land where I think it's going to land or where I want it to land. And luckily, it did. That was my introduction to Vietnam. We are speaking with Vietnam veteran and author and forward observer and RTO, John Wesley Fisher. John, I just got to clear up a couple of things quick. RTO, radio transmission officer, forward observer. These are two, this is a team of two that goes out into the jungle. Now imagine what John has just explained to you. He's in the jungle by himself, his forward observer, the officer who would typically do the, the map reading and find the coordinates and make sure that the artillery that they're firing in support of American forces is actually properly coordinated so that it's uh, defending the Americans by landing on the opposing forces. And so he's in the jungle. Uh, by himself, and the jungle is a formidable place without without an, uh, an enemy or, or an opposing force. So now you end up uh, staying there with the you're losing your officer and actually performing that duty yourself of calling an artillery deadly force on on the opposing force, hoping that uh, as your first time not landing it on Americans. So take off from there, John. Well, after after the I you know I, I found it so ironic that they asked me to go to the special training to be OCS officers training and I declined it but yet here I was doing that job and I was there three weeks by myself before a new guy came in and a new guy came in uh, green as can be just fresh from OCS at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. He knew nothing about the jungle, how to survive in the jungle. I had to pull him out of a rice paddy one time. He fell on his back in the middle of a rice paddy and he was drowning and I had to pull him up out of he knew nothing about what to do, when and where. And so I was training him just like Robbie trained me, only he's supposed to have all that knowledge. And so every time we got into a fire mission, you know, I would look at him like, are you going to be doing this? Are you going to do it? And, and he said, yes, but will you check me? And, you know, so I'd have, you know, it was really quite, quite a on the job training for him in the field as it was for me in the field. But I also had to learn the FO stuff in the field. He um, was very nervous. His father was a, a, a general, I believe. He was a high-ranking officer, wanted him to go to college in ROTC. He, he joined ROTC and in college, but when he got out, he, he, he didn't want to go to the war. He got drafted. Then they sent him to OCS, and so he ended up doing it all the same that he was going to do anyway, but he didn't want to be there, just like I didn't want to be there. He was more scared, though. He really, I mean, once I got this knowledge, you know, it gave me a, something to focus on and not focus on dying. And he could not get away from not focusing on dying. And I was, we were there together for a month, and I got an opportunity to go on an R&R. Now, I had only been in country for a little over five months, and I was offered an R&R to go to Thailand. They had an R&R, an extra R&R that they need to get rid of in the battery, not the infantry, but the battery, because I'm still with the battery. And so it was Thailand. My brother was serving in the Peace Corps in Thailand. So I thought, what the heck, maybe I can connect with him. And I decided to take it. And it was devastating news to the FO. He was just so scared. And he thought, oh my God, you're going to leave me out here in the middle of all this. Ironic thing about this is that when I came back from the R&R, we were back in Cameron Bay, and my buddy was still there, my cook buddy. He's in the D-Row section. That's a date eligible to return from overseas. That's the depot that he was working in. But he knew all the guys in the R&R depot, the incoming depot. And he went over to the R&R depot, and he 
talked to them and he says, I want you to try to keep Fisher here for a little bit. I want to, he's a buddy from back home. I want to go to the beach with him and we, and you know, all this and that. And they said, sure. And so they held me back a few days. Tommy, my friend's name is Tommy. He rented, he got a Jeep from the motor pool. We went to the beach and we were body surfing out in the beach. Can you imagine this in Vietnam with your best friend body surfing on the beach in Cameron Bay? I look down the beach and I see there's, there's guys on surfboards. I mean, it's quite a ways down there. So I had to really focus and, and pay attention. Is that really for real? Are they, is there surfboards down there? And Tommy saw me looking down there and I said, hey, man. And he says, don't even think about it. That's an infirmary down there. And those are all patients. And that is for rehabilitation. And we're not allowed in there. You see the Constantina wire? This curled barbed wire going out, out, to, out into the ocean of 100 yards, football field. And, you know, you walk down the beach and here's this wire. You can't get to the other side where the infirmary is. And I'm stopped and I look at that and Tommy says, no, we can't go over there. Tommy's getting short. That means he's, his date eligible to return from overseas is coming up. He didn't want to do anything to mess with that. And he says, listen, man, I'm going to get in trouble. I, w- I don't want to do that. I'm just about ready to go home. And, and I said, listen, where they're going to send me, it doesn't matter if I get in trouble. I don't really even care. I said, I want to go over there and check this out. And I dove into the water and I started swimming out and to go around this Constantina wire. And there's my friend. As I was rounding the, the end of the wire, I looked back and there he is swimming right after me. He wasn't going to let me go alone. And we swam in. And when we got there, we walked up the beach and there are these guys fumbling out there on surfboards. And I said, listen, I got to go surfing. This is one of the highlights of my trip, my my experience in Vietnam is to go be able to go surfing. I walked out to this big old guy that could hardly lay on the board. And I said, Hey man, I think it's my turn. I've been out here all day, all morning trying to, I don't know. How does this work? When you get a turn, he says, you get your turns right now, buddy. He says, I can't work on this thing anyway. And he shoves it over to me and I grabbed, I got onto it and I started knee paddling and I looked back and my friend is walking into the water. He can't believe that I got a surfboard and I walked, paddle up to this other guy. And I said, Hey, you see that guy right there? I think it's his turn now. And he says, yeah, okay. And he pushes the board over to him. Tommy and I started surfing in Cameron Bay. You can't, we're both members of the Los Olos Surf Club and, and surfed in many, many competitions. And we're out there surfing before we knew it. We realized that the whole, all the water had completely cleared. All, everybody went in and we're sitting on the beach watching us surf. It was, it was quite an amazing, amazing thing. But at any rate, long story short, when we got back to the to Cameron Bay, it was I had to get on a finally get on a plane to go back to my unit. And when I was choppered out to where our unit was, the lieutenant, my forward observer, was laying on the chopper pad. He was killed in action, and he was ready to be loaded up onto the chopper. And here I was, I I blame myself because he was just he was killed while I was taking extra days in Cameron Bay, like it's my fault, you know? Of course it wasn't, but I'll never forget it. I went back to the unit and they were so happy to get me back because they didn't have a forward observer out there. And I got out to the infantry and I was the man again for another month before they brought in another greenback lieutenant that was in the same situation as the one before. Maybe not quite as scared, but also he didn't really know what to do. He was also killed in action. I lost three lieutenants out there. And, you know, it was a crazy thing because I'm the RTO. The RTO and the lieutenant are the most vulnerable out in the field. RTO carries a, 
radio on the on his back. It's called a Prick 25, a PRC. We called it a Prick 25. It weighed about 25 pounds, and I put it on the top of my backpack. I had an antenna. It folded, but yet most of the time it had to be straight up. It was four feet up in the air and a perfect target. So um, that's my experience. I, you know, I, I never expected to have to be in Vietnam. I didn't want to be in Vietnam, and here I was involved in face-to-face missions sometimes to save ourselves. If we became caught in sniper fire or other situations, I would have to use my weapon. Most of the time, I used my radio as my weapon, and the radio was to call in artillery. And to me, you know, I know, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, excuse me, I grab a little composure here. You know, take your time, John. This is a great story. We're a great uh, reminiscing of your experience there. I can't imagine having lost that many people. I believe you also had to spend, what, about 36 hours in the jungle alone with, uh, with one of your killed officers before you could be retrieved. I don't want to take you there, but I think that's got to be an, a horrible part of this story. 36 hours alone in the jungle is bad enough, but w- with uh, an officer who you've lost. Uh, makes it even more complicated. So now you've you're 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 getting ready to go back home. But at this point, I just ask you again: Are you believing in any mission? Uh, has anybody ever said to you, "We got to stop Ho Chi Minh"? Is there something in your head that is giving you any incentive to believe in in what you're doing? Is there uh, is religion a factor, or, or is this all just purely, as you mentioned earlier, survival? It's just staying alive. Well, I, if I mentioned it was just for survival, it was just for survival. It really was. And I was just about ready to say that my, with my radio, I was involved in killing a lot of other people as well. And so I know I'm obsessive. And so I ca- actually counted the bodies that I saw that I was responsible for. But the blind kills from calling in artillery on villages, on forces, on everything are just they haunted me for years and years and years. And I mean, there's hundreds, but probably thousands of those blind kills. So much more, such a, a large number compared to the actual bodies that I saw that I was responsible for. The ones that I'm responsible for that I couldn't see, the blind kills are the ones that haunt me sometimes still today, but most, mostly I've, I've gone through the processing that one out, but for the most part, that's the bad thing. No, there was no, I did not know I have a mission to do this, and I didn't want to kill any of these people. I didn't believe that there was, I mean, I guess we were fighting for democracy for South Vietnam. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me that that we're helping somebody with a civil war like that. But here we are helping them with a civil war that is really unwinnable. And it's unwinnable because the Vietnamese people are so industrious. I mean, we have a little over 58,000 names on our memorial wall in Washington, D.C. The Vietnamese lost that many during Tet alone. The same number that's on our wall, they lost that many during Tet and more. And I mean, the numbers, you can't really put a, a, a figure on how many casualties they had during the war, but they had millions and millions and millions of inductees, and three to four million did not come home. So, you know, we don't have body counts for all of that, but that's how many, that's how many people were probably killed during the Vietnam War 
the Vietnamese people. And there's also civilians too. And so when there's villages that are being bombed because of supposed VC action, it kills everybody in the village. So, so now you're getting ready to go home. One, one of the other things that, that I experienced as an infantry soldier, I don't want to add too much here, is we'd have to go into villages and actually search houses. And how humiliating to these people, the father of a house, to have people from another country come into your house and search it and treat you just like an insignificant rag. Uh, that, that was really a horrible part of this whole operation, too. So, but now you're getting ready to go home. What are your expectations when you go home? Are you thinking what it's going to be like when you leave this war zone and get back to San Diego and, and the surfboard? Well, you want to know a funny thing. Towards the end of my, of my I uh, had to spend some time in an infirmary. I had a motor round go off pretty close to where I, my position. It was in the bush uh, enough to sh- shield all of the metal. I didn't take any metal, but I, my eardrums blew up. The compression of the motor round blowing up right next to me just like tried to suck the ear, my eardrums out. And I became dizzy and weak, and I was medevac. Uh, they thought I had blood coming out of my ears. They thought I would have been hit seriously in the head. And when it was discovered that it was only my ears, I spent two weeks in the infirmary and was sent back. I only had a short time left, about a m- less than a month left when I got back to the artillery hills. And when I was waiting to, in the chopper to go back out to the infantry, uh, the Captain came down and said, "We decided to keep you here on the on the uh, bait on the battery hill here, and we would like you to be in the fire direction center." Now there's a big metal box in the top of the hill that had guys that were educated in directing fire out for the infantry, and they were mostly a couple of specialists, a couple of lieutenants, and the captain was in there a lot. The first sergeant was in there a lot. And they said, we'd like you to be in there because of your experience. And I said, you know what, sir, I really, I just need, I need to be with the guys and I need to be out outside. I don't want to be in there with you guys. I've talked to you enough. I know what you do. I don't want to do that. They said, well, okay, well, then why don't you just get on a gun and keep your radio because we would like to be able to have you to help communicate with some of the new guys out in the field. So I did all that. But while I was there, some guy, uh, officer from base camp comes out and he wants to talk to me. He wants to talk to everybody on my gun, actually. And he wanted to talk to many of the guys in the battery, but he wanted to talk to me. He picked me first and he calls me in and he says, we're interested in trying to get you to, to re-up into the army. And I said, seriously? I mean, you don't even know who I am if you're asking me that. And he says, well, he says, we knew, I knew you would probably have that kind of reaction, but we have a new program in the army here that I think you might be interested in. And I said, I don't think so. A new program in the army. I don't want anything to do with the army. He said, well, you know that if you go home with one day less than five months left on your two-year commitment, then you will be discharged from the army. And I'm trying to think, discharged from the army. Boy, that would be so wonderful to be able to go home and be discharged from the army. I said, but I have about seven months left. And they said, well, not if you extend and stay over in Vietnam, the extra days needed. He said, we, you know, we've learned that if we can keep the experienced guys over here longer, we don't have to bring the new guys over here as quickly. And it's much better for our, for the army. And I said, so I, I immediately started calculating and he saw that I was doing, trying to calculate how many days I'd have to spend. And he said, he said, 56. I said, 56. 
He said, if you extend 56 days, you'll go home one day shy of five months left. And I said, oh boy. I mean, it seemed like a forever time to extra to spend in Vietnam, but I was on the artillery hill now. It wasn't supposedly as bad as being out in the field. It wasn't as that bad at first. And so I slept on it that night. And the next morning before he left, I said, okay, I'll do it. So I signed on the dotted line. I was there to stay an extra day, an extra 56 days, which turned out to be pretty heavy. Our hill was overrun twice. Once while I was not in attendance, I was in base camp for a time. My entire gun was wiped out while I was in base camp. So it was a pretty heavy time during, you know, to stay extra. I also had this inkling of an idea that, you know, I'm ashamed of myself. And I truly was ashamed of myself for participating in such a debacle. I really thought that this, I mean, how can I live with myself, let alone my family and other people when I go home? You know, maybe I'll be killed in 56 days. Maybe that'll just be the answer. I often thought many times after I'd been home, you know, it would have been way easier to not come home from this than it is to come home and have to deal with all this pressure of PTSD and everything that I was going through. But I decided to uh, stay. I wasn't killed. And I went home. I remember when the plane landed, the Braniff Airlines, a big orange balloon type of a of a jet, it's no longer a viable company. But I uh, landed in McCord Air Force Base, same one that I took off in, in Seattle, Washington, put my left foot down on the ground first. But the most important thing is, is I remember when the plane landed, Everybody on the plane was so excited and the cheers went up and the yelling and the hooting and the clapping and everybody was so excited. And I'm sitting here in my window seat thinking, oh no, <laughs> now what do I do? I really didn't know. I was really scared to go home. Just go back to that part where you're, you're, you're coming back from the day in the rear a, a, after re-upping and just real quickly, you don't have to go through a battle or anything and, and found the artillery piece because a lot of times when people find out your piece was, or hear your piece was destroyed, they're not really sure what you're talking. During that last period of time, I was called into base camp and I had my radio and I'm sitting in, my, in the bunker and uh, it was early one morning and, and this helicopter comes in. It's a Red Cross helicopter. It has a big red cross on the side of it. And it, all of a sudden the guy is saying, I need to, I'm coming in quickly. I need to pick up code name, John Fisher. You're not supposed to say the guy's name over the, over the wire. So he said, code name, John Fisher. That's my code <laughs> name. And, and, and I hear this on the radio and he's, what, why is he wanting to pick me up? And, and the reason why he wants to pick me up is because he needs to take me into base camp. Why does he need to take me into base camp? I get onto the truck. First of all, I run up the hill. The captain's running down to get me. And I, I said, I heard, I heard, I'm going. I'm going to the chopper pad. And, and I get on there and I said, why in the hell do they want me in base camp? I mean, what, what's going on? And the gunner says, probably somebody at home died or something and you need to go home for a funeral or something. I don't know. And, and I'm going, what? I mean, somebody dies at home while I'm in Vietnam? How, how ironic is that? And how crazy could that be? I get into base camp and I go running up and I, it's about three quarters of a mile from the chopper pad to where my fourth and 42nd uh, headquarters was. I go running around. I run this one bunker and, and almost slam right into the first sergeant who was walking around and, and, and I go, oh, sorry, sorry, top. And I started to walk off and he goes, wait a minute, are you John Fisher? 
And I said, yes, sir. And, and he said, you need to come with me. And he took me into the, to the uh, mess tent area, sat me down at a table, put a pad of paper in front of me and a pen and said, you need to write your mother. And I go, what? She hasn't heard from you. And she contacted the Red Cross. She wants to know if you're okay. I had stopped writing home. I, I mean, there was so much going on. I didn't want to tell my mother. what I was lying anyway the whole time that I was writing at home, never telling what was going on. And here I, I decided I just got to stop doing this. And my mother had this dream in the middle of the night that I was in danger. And when she woke up, she told my father the dream. And he says, why don't you contact the Red Cross? Find out. Find out if he's okay or not. So she did. And they responded this way by pulling me out of the field, embarrassing the heck out of me. And this first sergeant sitting over, leaning over my shoulder, watching me write this letter to my mother. I wrote, dear mom, you won't believe this, but I'm sitting here writing this letter with this big fat sergeant standing over me, looking at me, and he's sitting there reading it too while I'm writing it. And I didn't even care. And I'm just, <laughs> I said, I'm fine. I can't write home. It's a crazy place over here. I, I can't talk about what's going on, and I don't want to, and I'm not going to. Please don't contact the Red Cross anymore. I love you very much. I'll be home when I get home. And my D-Rose date, by the way, my new D-Rose date was instead of May, it was July 3rd. And so I signed my name and said, I'm getting the heck out of here. I want to go back out to the field. And he said, he said, well, we just got a word in from the chopper pad that it's closed. Nobody's going out there. Your, your hill is getting hit right now. There's too much action going on. You'll have to spend the night here, which was devastating to me because what is the first thing in the army when you come in out of the field and you're sitting there in base camp and if you have to spend the night, you have to get a haircut, you have to get new fatigues, you have to get new boots. I was prided my boots. They were all scuzzy and, and suede looking and everything. They look like the boots that the army guys wear now in the desert but they're supposed to be black and polished, you know. I had to get new boots. I had to, all this. It was really embarrassing, especially the haircut. <laughs> and I had a mustache with handlebars too, you know, and I had to cut the handlebars off and trim it all up to be army regulation. And they're sending me back out to the field looking like that. It was terribly embarrassing. But all that was forgotten quickly as the chopper was going out. It circled around our battery a couple of times before it landed. And I looked down there. I'm a little disoriented because we're flying up high and we're looking down on this on the battery. I haven't seen it at that angle before. And, and I'm counting the guns and there's only five guns, supposed to be six. And it, what's going on down there? I only count five. And the guy says, yeah, one of those, one of those guns would, got taken out yesterday and the whole crew with it. And I go, what? And I get down. They land the chopper and I get off and I run up to the top and the captain comes out of the out of the fire direction center. And he looks at me and he says, you're one lucky son of a bitch, Fisher. I go, what? He says, your whole gun got taken out and the whole crew and everything yesterday. And I go, oh my God. And I said, I'm a, one lucky son of a bitch. I said, one lucky son of an angel. I said, my mom saved my life. He had no idea what I, what I meant by that. And I slowly walked down towards the gun. And he says, you don't have to go down there. And I said, yes, I do. I have to go down there. And it was in shambles. They weren't expecting to get a new gun back anytime soon. They'd be operating with five. And the captain said, now listen, you can come into the fire direction center with us now if you want, or you can pick any gun, or you can just work for anybody you want. You're only, you're short. You only have a month or so left and you, you can 
you can hang out wherever you want. I went down there and I went into the bunker, which was caved in, and there were some belongings of some of these guys in there. There was a tape recorder with some music in it that one guy used to hear as a reel-to-reel type tape recorder in those days, little ones, and I was able to salvage the tape recorder, and but the um, it was a mess. And he says, well, what are you doing down in there? And he comes walking over, and I'm down there trying to straighten things up and see if I can find a cot where I can sleep on. And he says, what are you going to do? You're not going to sleep in here, are you? And I said, yes, I am. This is where I'm going to stay. He said, well, this place just got hit. Aren't you worried about it getting hit? I said, listen, it's like lightning, isn't it? It doesn't strike twice in the same place. I'm going to stay here. And I ended up working for every gun during that time, and I worked my buns off. I mean, I worked so hard. I did not want to take any time to think about what had happened. If one gun was not doing anything and the other gun was, I moved immediately over to it and started working with them. I humped ammo all the time from the chopper. Every day we would get ammo supply. We'd have to go down there, break open the box of the two 105 rounds that are approximately almost 30 inches long. And you'd put them on your one on each shoulder and you put a box of fuses on the back. You know, they, they weigh about 100. That was about 150 pounds. And you'd hump it up the hill and down to your gun. And I humped ammo and humped ammo and worked on the guns. One night it was pouring rain. And I was working on this one gun. I pick up this round and you have to put the round into the shell. And you pick up, you count how many bags they tell you to a powder you put in there and that'll determine how far the projectile of that round will go. And I get onto this gun and, and start working and all, and it's raining so bad. The shell, it's, it's, it's a brass shell slips in my hand. We're working so fast and it's headed for the ground and I grab it just in time and keep it together and slam it into the breech. And the guy shuts the breech onto my finger. I got a giant scar, went clear to the bone, that finger, and I didn't even know it. I was working so hard and so determined to get on this mission. All of a sudden, somebody says, somebody get hit around here? There's blood all over the pit. And, and I look, and all of a sudden, I look at my hand, and my finger had gotten caught in the breach, and I didn't even know it. Of course, later, it started throbbing. I knew it then, but I didn't know it at the time because I was so focused on the mission at hand. We're speaking with Vietnam veteran and author John Wesley Fisher. You bring up an interesting point. So you're keeping yourself occupied with anything that you can possibly do just so you don't have to think about what's actually going on. That isolating your thinking, just staying focused, removing yourself from from what's really happening by keeping your mind occupied. That's something that's just a survival tactic mentally that, that you don't even know you're doing. So you're, you're getting to this point, and I, I think, John, this might be a good place for us to take a break for this session and invite everyone back to continue with session two, where you prepare to go home and, and get on your Braniff airplane and, and head back to the United States. So join us back for session two. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.